What I am saying is that as long as an heir is under age, he is no different from a slave. Although he owns the whole estate, the heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were under age, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. I want us to read one more time, just verses 4 and 5. I'm going to let you all read it. Read it nice and loud, verses 4 and 5. I'll start, but you just jump on in. But when the times... Amen. My title today is, I'm so glad he came. I am so glad he came. Are you glad he came? Is somebody here glad he came? I am so glad he came. Let me pray. Father God, we are thankful today that we can look back and know that you have come to save a people from their sins. And many of us here can say, amen, I'm one of those. I've cried out to him and he answered my call. Oh God, we pray that you'll be with us in the coming moments as we look at your word. Speak to us in the power of your word and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Be with us, we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, amen. amen. It is good to be here. I am so glad that Jesus came. And I know that many of you are as well. I want to look at this text and we're really going to jump into the middle of it, into verse 4. And we're going to answer a few questions as we look at the text. And the first question I want to ask and answer is simply this. When did he come? When did he come? You know, here's the thing. We don't really know the actual day that Jesus came. We, we, we pretty much know it wasn't December 25th. But, but it's all right to celebrate it on that day. But the first question on the table is when did he come? And if you look at verse 4, we get an answer. It says, but when the set time had fully come. Here's my answer to the question. When did he come? Jesus came at just the right time. When did he come? He came at just the right time. I like the ESV translation. It says, but when the fullness of time had come. In other words, when the universe was nine months pregnant with the Messiah. When, when, when God had so planned and ordained it that time and eternity could not hold him in any longer. It was his time to come. 
He came in the fullness of time. He came at just the right time. I learned a few years ago not to make jokes with women who are eight plus months pregnant. You, you don't make this joke, well, maybe the baby will be a few weeks late. That, that's not a good joke for a woman who is out to here already, ankles and feet swollen, hot on a July day, and you say, maybe the baby will come late. You're ready to get slapped across the face in Jesus' name. Don't, don't make that joke. And so a woman who's ready to go, she's ready for that time. She doesn't want to hear about being late. God did not show up late. God in Jesus Christ came in the fullness of time at just the right time. God came into this world. And so let me ask you, let me just say this. When Jesus came, it split time right in two. We talk about A.D. and B.C. and uh, secular historians talk about B.C.E. and C.E., whatever you Use A, B, C, D, E. It doesn't matter. Jesus came and split time right in two. He is the middle. He is the center of everything. And when he came, everything had to change. Listen, when you're getting ready for a child, there's a few things that you do to get ready. First of all, you get the room ready. How many of you have had kids? You got that room ready, didn't you? You, you, you made sure that everything was in place. You got a nice little crib. You, got, uh, uh, you, you set up stenciling on the walls to make sure that it's ready for your baby boy or your baby girl. You bought things just to make it just so, just right, so that when your baby came in to your house, they'd be comfortable, they'd be welcome, and it would be a good, safe place for them to be. Well, God did the same thing in getting ready for his son, but he didn't get a room ready at the Ritz-Carlton. Jesus didn't come to dwell in a palace or in a temple. He came, but God got the room ready in a little barn in Bethlehem. God got the room ready and put just the right cradle there, a feeding trough. You know, we, we say these words sometimes of the Christmas story, and we talk about how she wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, and it sounds so nice. But it's actually a dirty, nasty place. The, 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 the king of kings and the lord of lords didn't have a temple prepared for him. He didn't have a, a, a palace prepared. He had a barn prepared. And he was put into a feeding trough that the animals would eat from. That's where the Son of God was born. God's telling us something about who he is by the way he came and what he came to do. But that's not all that you do. When you're getting ready for a baby to come, you send out announcements. And I see this more and more. You don't wait till the baby comes. When you know the baby's coming, Instagram and Facebook and Evites are all over the place letting people know, oh, we've got a special one coming into our family. We want to let people know. What I've seen more and more is now people are putting out on uh, Facebook and on Instagram, they're, they're putting out uh, the ultrasound pictures of the baby. Like the baby's not here yet, y'all. But they're so excited that the baby's coming that they just can't wait to let everyone know. 
And we think we, invited, we invented that, but we didn't. God knew about sending out invitations way before any of us was born. As a matter of fact, at the moment that the need for a Savior came, God let us know that he's on his way. In Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve fell into sin at that very time, after God confronts them in their sin, the first thing he says is these words, and he says these words to the snake in the garden. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her, and he will crush your head. And you will strike his heel. That's Genesis 3.15. Theologians call it the proto-evangelion. That means the first gospel. So the moment that sin enters the world, God says, we need a savior. I'm going to announce he's on his way. The, 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 The reading in Hebrew is a strange reading. It says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. The The actual reading there in Hebrew is between your seed and her seed. Now that's a concept that didn't make any sense in the mind of a person in the ancient Near East. Because a woman wasn't thought to have the seed, the seed came from the man. But when God announces the birth of Jesus, it's not going to be the seed of a man. It's coming through the seed of a woman. And thousands of years before Jesus shows up on the scene, God says, I'm going to announce this right now, and I don't care who hears it. He wants us to know. He announces it 700 plus years before through the prophet Isaiah. I think someone already said these words from Isaiah 9, 6. Unto us, a child is born. Unto us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And you will call his name. We will call his name. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. 700 plus years before Jesus comes, God sends out the announcement. He's on his way. And then I think of the announcement on the night of his birth. Who does he announce this birth to? He announces it, according to Luke 8, to some shepherds out in their fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. Shepherds were considered to be lowly people. They were considered to be untrustworthy people. They were considered to be unclean people. And yet, the king of kings, when he comes on the scene, that's who the angels go to. They're not going to the palace. They're going to a lowly place. They're going to people who were considered unclean and untrustworthy. And I'm glad that that's where they went because I could have been one of those people. You could have been one of those people, unclean, untrustworthy. But God sends out his announcements. Not only that, he gets the room ready. He sends out the announcements. But you also make sure that you've got the, the, the route mapped out so you know exactly how to get where you need to go. When, when those birth pangs come on, when that water breaks, hopefully before the water breaks, but when, when mama is ready to go, when those 
When labor comes on, you know exactly where you're going. You map out the route to the hospital. You get your bag ready. You get everything ready so that when the baby comes, you know exactly what to do and where to go. Well, God got everything ready for the coming of Jesus Christ. 300 plus years before he came on the scene, there was a Greek king and general named Alexander the Great. And Alexander, in 10 years' time, went out from Greece into the Middle East. He went past the Middle East into Asia and into India. He went into Egypt and North Africa, and he spread Greek culture and the Greek language through all of these areas of the world. There were hundreds of language groups, but when he spread Greek language and Greek culture, now... They were bound together by a common language, the language of Greek. And that became the the language that was used for trade and commerce throughout this huge empire called the Greek Empire. And then the Roman Empire, as the Romans took over it, they kept that language. Well, what did that do? Why did God allow that to happen? Well, listen, when Jesus came on the scene and when his apostles wrote the Holy Scriptures, the Scriptures were able to go out into all these parts of the world in one language, and people could understand the language of Greek. But not only was it Greek, it was a particular kind of Greek called Koine Greek. There is classical Greek. If you read Plato or Socrates or Aristotle, you'll read classical Greek. That was the language of scholars and the elite. But God had his word written in common language, the Greek that was spoken on the streets, where people say y'all, where people say John, where people just get it in and, and they use the common language of people on the street. That's the Greek that this Bible was written in. God had put it together so that when the sun came into the world, the word of him could spread everywhere fast. James Boyce, the pastor from 10th Presbyterian years ago, said that at this time the world was sunk into a moral abyss so low that even the pagans cried out against it and that spiritual hunger was everywhere. At that time, at just the right time, Jesus comes into the world. It was a divine setup. It's an old song that says, he's an on-time God. Somebody knows the next line. He's an on-time God? Yes, he is. He's an on-time God. Yes, he is. He comes right on time. But listen, that's nice to know about Jesus coming on time in history, but you need to know that he's an on-time God, a right-on-time God in your own life. That song goes on to say, he may not come when you want him, but he's always right on time. You need to know that we serve an on-time God. Some of us need to remember and look back what God has brought you through. A bunch of y'all in here should not be here today. You would not be here today if it wasn't for the Lord on your side, if it wasn't for the Lord keeping you. 
keeping you from the foolishness and sin of others and keeping you from your own foolishness and sin if it had not been for the Lord on my side. And he comes at just the right time. He's an on-time God. Almost seven years ago, my wife had open-heart surgery. Remember going to the doctor and getting her checked out, and uh, we were overnight in Chestnut Hill Hospital. And they did all these tests on my wife, and at the end of all the tests, the cardiologist came to us and said, I don't know exactly what it is, but she can go home because I know it's not her heart. And so we went online, like, like we do, to WebMD, and we became experts in her diagnosis. And we figured out exactly what it was. But he said, but there's one more test that needs to happen. And you can just schedule that later on. My wife didn't even want to go to that other test. I said, baby, you need to go to that test. And so that was set up for the next Friday. And on Friday, we went and she did a stress test. And within about 15 seconds, the the doctor said, stop, get off this. We need to talk. And what he told us is that she needs to get into surgery as soon as possible. And so she went into open heart surgery and had a double bypass. This is seven years ago. And she came through that. And God gave me faith through the whole process. Uh, But on the other end of the process, she had gone through the surgery. She was recovering. She was doing better. It was the first time that my kids were actually going to be allowed to come in and see their mother on the other side of this surgery. So we were happy that that was happening. But all of a sudden, as I went to go see her for a moment, as I was with the kids, I heard a bunch of commotion. And there were doctors coming in the room and nurses coming in the room and anesthesiologists coming in the room and all of these people coming around her. And they said, oh, I said, what's going on? They said, she's bleeding internally and we've got to take her down to the OR as soon as we possibly can. And it was a very grim kind of scene. And I know my wife was fearful. And for the first time in this process, I was fearful. And they said, we've got to get her out of here right now and take her down to the OR. I said, not so fast. Don't take her down just yet. I need to pray for my wife. And the Lord gave me a prayer, and I prayed like I never prayed. I mean, that whole hospital heard about the name of Jesus on that day. The nurses and the doctors and the anesthesiologists, they heard about a God who is able to heal. Then I went back to be with my kids, but it wasn't long they came back. And I said, how did it go? They said, well, when we got down there, we figured out we'd look one more time at the bleeding and the bleeding had stopped. We didn't need to do another surgery. We didn't need to go in again. I'm just telling you this to say we serve an on-time God. Every story doesn't end with a healing like that. Every story doesn't end with a happy ending. But the reality is you and I need to know, when did he come? He came right on time. He'll come on time in your life too. Second question Not only when did he come, but how did he come? The Bible says he came. Jesus came in just the right way. Look at verse, continue reading in verse 4, but when the set time had fully come, look at this. God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. 
We see three verbs here. He was sent, God sent his son, and then he was born of a woman and born under the law. Three verbs, but the first one is the the verb that overarches this entire section here when it says he was sent by God. God sent his son. How did he come? Jesus came in just the right way. He came being sent by the father. In other words, when that baby was born in the Bethlehem barn, this wasn't his first time to be somewhere. He was sent from heaven. He was sent from the father. He was sent from eternity and he showed up in time. In a particular place, he came at just the right time, and he came in just the right way, sent by the Father. And so the Old Testament, Genesis 1-1, says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But the Apostle John, when he's writing the fourth gospel, he puts these words These words on his pen in John chapter 1 and verse 1, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. It says he was in the beginning with God. And then verse 3 says, and all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. So anyone who reads those words says, wait a second, who is this word? This is the word from Genesis 1-1. This is the creative word of God. This is the eternal God who becomes a flesh in Bethlehem. He says in verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we beheld his glory, glory as of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. He made his dwelling among us. The word there in Greek is a word that means to set up your tent somewhere. Jesus came and he set up shop right here, right in the midst of a broken world in order that he might be its savior and fix it. So he was sent, first of all, by the father, but he was, then it says he was born of a woman. He was born of a woman. This is saying that he is fully human in every possible way. Jesus is 100% God, but he's born of a woman. He is also 100% man. The theologians call that the hypostatic union. He is all God and all man. There is no confusion between the two. He's not a half and half creature. He doesn't just appear to be God or appear to be man. He is both incarnate. He comes as our Savior. And because he is fully human, he is the God who can relate to our weakness in every way. Hebrews chapter 4, 15 and 16 says, We do not have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one that has been tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet without sin. So it says in verse 16, let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. Because Jesus is not only fully God sent by the Father, but he's also born of a woman. He is fully man. He can understand everything that you go through in your life. There's nothing that 
Jesus has to scratch his head about and say, I wonder what that's like. He knows it. He knows it. He knows it. You've got to understand that God knows what you're going through. He's not a far off deity. Not only that, it says, but he was born under the law. This is how he was born, according to the eternal plan of God. And as the perfect son, as the one and only son, as the God man, he comes according to the law. And so he must be perfect. He must be sinless. He must be without blemish. He comes as the son of David, born in Bethlehem. Micah 5.2 had prophesied that 700 years earlier. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathath, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Jesus is born in this little town of Bethlehem. You could write a song about that if you wanted to. Bethlehem is not Jerusalem. It's not a big city. It's not a big place. It's not the center of anything. But Bethlehem is a small town. It's only about six miles away from Jerusalem. But it's a small town, a nondescript place. Not somewhere that you'd brag that you came from. But the very name of the city itself, Bethlehem, in Hebrew means the house of bread. Bethlehem. Don't say Lechem to your neighbor. You might spit on them. Bethlehem, the house of bread. Jesus is born in the house of bread. He who becomes the bread of life. He who is the one that we eat of. He is the one that we partake of in order that we may have life. Jesus is born in the house of bread. And we learn that as even those shepherds were out there with their sheep on that night when he was born, Bethlehem was a place where sheep were bred in order to be brought to the temple in Jerusalem in order to be sacrificed as sacrificial offerings. Bethlehem was the place where people would go to buy their sacrificial sheep. But in Bethlehem, the one and forever Lamb of God is born. His name is Jesus. I'm so glad he came born under the law. He is God. He is man. He was born under the law. Jesus is qualified to save you. He is the only one who is qualified to save you. There is nothing else. There is no one else that is able to save, save this Jesus, Jesus the Christ, the son of God. Listen, some of us are waiting on other things to save us. If I do enough good stuff, Maybe I'll be okay with God. No, you won't. You can't do enough good stuff because you've done too much bad stuff already. Your money won't save you. Your education won't save you. Your family of origin won't save you. Anything you do won't save you. No other religion or philosophy can save you. There is one Savior. His name is Jesus, and I'm glad he came. Jesus came the right way. And brothers and sisters, let me say to you today, we need to come the right way too. We need to come like the wise men came. 
in worship and adoration and reverence. We need to come the way the shepherds came, lowly and knowing their condition and knowing their need of a Savior. We need to come even in the way that the innkeeper came who didn't have room in the inn but made room in the barn. Maybe some of us need to make room for God somewhere in your life where you have blocked him out. You need to make room. You say, I don't have any room here, God, but you need to make some room for Jesus to come in. He's the only one that can fix it. It's only Jesus. He came the right way. And the last thing, not only when did he come and how did he come, but why did he come? Well, you asked that, but I've been talking about it already, but we'll just talk about it a little bit more before we close. Why did he come? Jesus came for just the right purpose. Look at verse 5. It says, to redeem those under the law. First of all, Jesus came to redeem. He came to redeem. That word means to buy back. Some of you have heard of this one phobia called agoraphobia. Who's heard of that? Agoraphobia. That's fear of being out in open places. That comes from a Greek word, agora, which is the marketplace. And there's a verb called agorazo, which means buying and selling. So when you're in the marketplace, you buy and sell. The word that's used here for redeem is built on that word, but it's not simply to buy something. It has a preposition in front of it, ex agorazo. It means to buy back from, to buy out of, to take away from by paying whatever price is necessary. And Jesus Christ came to redeem us. What did he redeem you from? What did he buy you back from? A lot of people think he bought me back from the devil. That would be a hallelujah praise, but it's not right. Because the devil never owned nothing anyway. The devil acts like he owns people. He acts like he owns things, but he doesn't own anything. And he knows his end, and he's not happy about it. What did he buy you back from? Jesus redeemed you from the wrath of Almighty God. You and I deserve that wrath because of our sin, but Jesus came to buy you back, to pay the price in his own blood, that precious blood that flowed out of his body to cover your sins and my sins. Jesus came to redeem you. Not only that, he came to adopt you. Look at the next phrase here. To redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. God adopted you into his family. And he knew the mess that you were before he adopted you. He didn't adopt you. And then six months later say, oh my goodness. Or God might say, oh, my, me. (laughs) This one's a mess. What did I do? I'm going to take him back. I'm going to take her back. No, God adopted with full knowledge of all your mess. 
God adopted with full knowledge of all that you would do that would not honor him, that when you wouldn't walk with him, when you wouldn't believe in him, when you would want to turn away. And God said, but I got you because you're my son. You're my daughter. I'm not letting you go. This adoption will stick. This adoption's not going anywhere. God buys his people back and adopts them into his family. I have a friend who has a really cool job. Her job is philanthropist. That means there's a whole lot of money somewhere in her family. And her job is to give away money. Her job is to look at different causes and different things and decide where to give away money. Oh, that would be a good job to have, y'all. My philanthropy job wouldn't last that long based on my savings account, however. But that's her job. And she tells the story of her parents letting her and her siblings know from a young age, listen, y'all, you don't need to be proud of this wealth that you have because you were born on third base. So when you score a run, to use a baseball analogy, you didn't have to go very far to score that run. You were born on third base already, so you don't need to brag about when you score. But the parents told them there are other people who are born, they're not even in the stadium. They're not even on the playing field. They don't even have a uniform, a bat, a glove, or a ball. But when they score, that's something to be happy about. Listen, Jesus has adopted you into his family and you, believe it or not, are wealthy in the mercy of God. You are wealthy in the grace of God. You are wealthy in the love of God. And your job as a Christian is to be a philanthropist and give that away to the rest of this world. To let people know about this God. You don't have to hoard the resources that he gives, but you give them away to the glory of his name. Last thing here. It's not only has he redeemed you and adopted you, but he came to set you free. Someone needs to hear this today. He came to set you free. Look at verse 7. So you're no longer a slave but God's child. You're no longer a slave, but you're God's child. Jesus came to set you free from anything and everything that would come between you and a relationship with God and the glory of that relationship. He came to to be in that place to set you completely free so that God will be glorified in your life and through your life to the praise and the glory of the name of Jesus. Listen, that's a good word, but it's a hard reality for many of us many times because we are bound up. We are not free in many different areas, but you need to know that a Savior has come and He can and He will set you free. Call on His name. Call on His name. Old folks said He's a lawyer in the courtroom. He's a doctor by your sickbed. He writes out all of your scriptions, my wife told me. Not prescriptions. He writes out all your scriptions. 
He's a heart regulator. He is a mind transformer. He's the God who can make a way out of no way. He is the God of hope. I want to ask you today as we're considering the God who has come at the right time, in the right way, for the right purpose to set you free, do you need hope? What do you need hope for in your life right now? He is the one who gives hope. This is what I found that many people, even who have been Christians for a long time, we get to a place, we get to a situation, and in certain areas, we're just hopeless. We, we just get to a point where we, we kind of think, well, I guess that's all there is to it. I remember when I was hype about Jesus. I remember when I couldn't tell enough people about Jesus. I remember when I was excited about everything in life. But now I've been beat down. Life has knocked me back many times. And right now I can go on in this Christian life, but just kind of under the radar, living A semi-hopeless Christian life. Brothers and sisters, that's not the life that God desires for you to live. So someone here may be asking, you're going through something and you feel invisible. God, do you even see me? Ask Hagar that question. Hagar was the maidservant of Sarah, and became Abraham's wife and had a son. But she was sent out from Abraham and Sarah. And she was alone with her son in a desert place and cried out to God. And God revealed himself to her as El Rohi, the God who sees me. God sees you wherever you're at, whatever you're going through. Someone else may be asking the question, but can God really Forgive me. Look, other people don't know some of the dirt I've done. They don't know the dirt I did years ago or even what I did last night or this morning. They don't know just how dirty and filthy and messed up and away from God's way I really am. God, can you forgive me? Ask David. David, who had an adulterous affair with Bathsheba and to cover it up had her Her husband killed on the front lines in the war. A murderer, an adulterer, and then later in life, in his old age, because of lack of trusting in God, he has the number of the armies of Israel counted, and God's not happy, and God kills thousands of people because of of David's pride and arrogance and lack of trust in God. Can anyone, can God forgive me, asked David. He writes these words in Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. God is able to forgive anything and everything you've ever done. Someone else says, but can God rescue me? You don't know what a mess I've made. You don't know what a mess I'm in. Ask Gideon if God can rescue you. Gideon was faced with an army of 120,000 Assyrians. He had an army of 10,000, and God says, that's too many people. 
If you win, you'll think you did something. And so God takes that army of 10,000 and gets it down to 300 men against an army of 120,000, and God routes that army through Gideon. Can God rescue me? Yes, he can. Last question, can God take care of me? Will God take care of me? God, will you take care of me? Ask the thousands upon thousands who gathered to hear Jesus Christ preach the word of God and teach the word of God. And they were hungry in the wilderness and God takes five loaves. Jesus takes five loaves and two fish and and serves them and feeds 20,000 people. The one miracle that we see in all four Gospels is the feeding, we call it, of the 5,000, but that's just the men. That's not the women and the children, so it's probably at least 20,000 plus. And he feeds them with next to nothing. God, can you take care of me? Yes, he can. Yes, he will. Brothers and sisters, Jesus came 2,000 years ago, a baby born in a Bethlehem barn. I'm so glad he came. Are you glad he came? Because he came at just the right time. And he came in just the right way. He didn't need anyone's help in his coming. And he came for just the right purpose. And if you believe in him, if you trust him with your life, you can know that it's going to be all right. Listen, in as much as Jesus came right on time, In the history of the universe, he is an on-time God even now. He will come into the midst of your situation, in the midst of your life. He will come right on time, but you got to call on his name. you got to cry out to Jesus. And you got to believe that he is the one that loves you with an everlasting love. I'm looking forward to two days from now. When we celebrate Christmas. But I don't know about you, in, in many ways, every day for me as a believer in Jesus is Christmas Day. Celebrate the fact that He has come right on time. He's come in just the right way, the God man, the only one qualified to save, and that He has come to do just the right thing, to save His people completely and totally from their sin. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you today that you are such a good God. We thank you, Lord God, that you have not treated us as our sins deserve, but you have come in order to give us life, an abundant life in Jesus Christ. We celebrate your first coming 2,000 years ago. We look forward to your second coming where you will put everything in order and make all things right. And Lord, I pray even today that in this meantime between the first and second comings, that Lord, we may be found faithful. We may be found believing. We may be a people who call on your name and know of your grace your mercy, and your power. Have your way and be glorified in all things we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.